0: Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Take Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV?
1: Hello, and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest this week is great. It is Zephyr Teachout. Uh, I've known Zephyr for a long time. We were on the Dean campaign together, though I was a, a lowly and not very reliable summer intern, and, and she was an important innovator in digital organizing, which we talk about. She is now a professor at Fordham Law. She's run for governor of New York for a house district in New York. She's a real leader in anti-corruption politics and anti-corruption thinking. She wrote a great book called Corruption in America, which traces the definition of political corruption from the pretty expansive concern the founders had around it. To the way today's Supreme Court has narrowed what corruption means till it almost doesn't mean anything at all. We talk a lot about that and about how to deal with the fact that, you know, most people believe American politics is pretty corrupt and that's actually a, a genuine problem. She's also been a, a real intellectual mover in the rising concern about monopolies and economic concentration on the left. I think this is one of the most interesting and important emergent arguments in policy today. So we dig pretty deep into that. And she is also one of the lead lawyers in a court case against Donald Trump. Uh, arguing that he has violated the Constitution's emoluments clause. So we talk about what an emolument is, what the clause is, why Donald Trump has violated it, and how one actually takes the president of the United States to court. As always, a couple quick plugs. Check out The Weeds, my policy podcast with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. There is a lot of policy to talk about right now, and we talk about all of it there. I think if you're listening to this, you will enjoy that. Also, check out I Think You're Interesting, where Todd Vanderhoof, Box's critic at large, has the same kind of long-form interviews I'm doing here with Really, really fascinating figures in the culture. Uh, he just spoke to some top people behind The Americans, which is one of the most interesting and relevant shows on television today. Uh, if you're enjoying this, I think you'll enjoy that too. All that said, here's Zephyr Teachup. Zephyr Teachup, welcome to the podcast.
0: Wonderful to be on.
1: We met briefly, I think, but we met on the Dean campaign so many moons ago.
0: I was just thinking about that. I remember sitting in one of those like windowless rooms with you and Joe Trippi. And he was so excited because there was this young blogger uh, Ezra Klein, and if Ezra Klein was was going to be supporting us, we were everything. Everything was going to be better.
1: Joe, Joe Trippi was excited by anything at, <laughs> at all fair, times. He's, he's an excitable guy. But yeah, I, I was there only for two months, but you were because I was just an intern during my, a summer once. But you were you you were a big presence. You were like the the online organizer. You were creating the future of, of politics there. What did you do on the Dean campaign?
0: Um, well, I actually didn't come on as an internet person. I came on to organize the rural states, and then of Course, it turns out the way to organize rural states is at the time use something called Meetup, which you're all now familiar with. Meetup. Yes. And um, I am
1: familiar with and also have forgotten about. <laughs> <Right>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but basically, I was the, I was the director of online organizing. And uh what that meant is a few different things. One, which is really fun and exciting at the time, is we hired the first software developers for a presidential campaign to build uh, our own MySpace, you know, this is before Facebook. Remember, so we were trying to build our own social network for Howard Dean supporters, and that went on actually to be used by Obama's campaign in 2008 with a different underlying code, but the same basic structure was bought by the firm that ran that. And uh, but then I also did a lot of blogging, uh, which was a lot of fun and. Most of the blogging I was doing at the time was about engaging and organizing volunteers. And it, it was a moment in the early aughts um, where there was a sense like, oh, we're finally let free from the curse of the television and the curse of the passive the passive supporter of candidates. Now you can actually do something. And obviously a lot's happened since then, but it was a really exciting time to say, oh, I don't just have to give money or vote. I can organize. I can do more than that.
1: I, I look back on that campaign in that moment. And, and I always think it's something that today we underestimate how much we are in its lineage, just how much of what we think of as contemporary politics began like right then and right there. Cause the Dean campaign, it was really the first digital campaign. And, and it was the first it began to put into play. I think a lot of strategies that would ultimately come to define. Obama, come to define Trump, come to define Sanders. But but a lot of it began there. How did you become, from organizing rural states, how did you become the internet maven? Did you have a background in <laughs> no, digital organizing? No, there, I just used
0: to use the internet to dream of places I could go on Expedia. You know, how much would it cost to, to go to Burlington, Hawaii? Vermont. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I actually feel that way, too, that that was a really important early moment. And um, I mean, in In very specific ways, the Obama software came out of that campaign, and then the Obama software was mimicked by a lot of other campaigns. Um, But also, we were one of the first campaigns to say, we're going to let go some of the control and allow for mashups, which are now much more normal, but allow supporters to make their own posters. This was seen as very radical at the time, like all the posters were supposed to come from the campaign um, top down. And then, you know, there's there's some really positive things about that and also some really interesting side effects from that. In 2003, I believed we'd sort of cracked the nut uh, that we weren't going to be based on big donor politics anymore. Big donor politics were done. There was this thing that only a few of you Howard Dean junkies will remember, but we now see echoes of it all the time where there were, we had a bat. Uh, in oh, it, I remember it, the bat. <laughs> right. Uh, but we we basically had a public uh, show of all the money we were raising as we were raising it. So every twenty five dollars, you'd see it you'd see the bat get filled up with higher and higher levels.
1: Going to, do I remember this right? Fifteen million dollars wasn't that the? Yes, the exactly effort?
0: right. It, it isn't quaint, but now it seems quaint. Compared- but it was.
1: I was there that summer. That was the summer I was there when the bat was happening. And that number was – it was laughable. Like, the idea that that was even possible, it was shocking at that moment in politics that you could do that from small donors. Like, it just hadn't been done.
0: It it hadn't been done. Howard Dean wasn't being taken that seriously. And I think one of the things you're talking about probably with the echoes is that it showed that the the party doesn't get to choose because Howard Dean was very clearly not the choice of the Democratic Party. Interesting that he became – you know, the chair of the DNC, but he, there was a lot of uh, disdain for his candidacy, and he didn't have any of the usual party mechanisms. And so he showed that you could actually build support outside of those party mechanisms. And of course, you've seen a lot of that with both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump.
1: So, this is something that I, I wanted to talk about. It's one reason I wanted to begin the conversation in Dean because there are two. Mechanisms by which I think he changed things. There's two mechanisms, at least, interesting to trace. There's one which is the how did he do politics, right? The the internet organizing meetup, which then the social platforms developed, which became much more powerful forms of, of that. The online fundraising, which Sanders and and Obama both, you know, blew what Dean was able to do out of the water. Uh, all all that has advanced, and all that I think has taken a different shape than it had at that moment. It's become much more professionalized, if nothing else. Absolutely. But the other is the ideological moment that was in. I mean Dean was the left-wing insurgent. He was from the democratic wing of the Democratic Party. And yet, I think if you go back to that moment, a part of the whole argument for Dean, though he was anti-war, you know, he had been a kind of DLC guy, even though now he was in a fight with them, he was a technocrat. He you know, he was actually often portrayed as sort of the moderate compared to like that nutty Vermont politician Bernie Sanders who is, you know, also in the same state as him. And, and one thing that seems to me to be interesting about the after effects of that campaign is that those things have changed. How he did politics has given rise to a kind of politician that is very Undean-like, that is actually much less the party establishment than, than Dean ever was. I, I'm curious how you see the Dean to Sanders lineage.
0: I think that's really interesting because the, um, you know, I grew up in Vermont, and so I never thought of Howard Dean as left wing.
1: Right, because he wasn't. <laughs> <'cause>
0: he wasn't <laughs> you know, and and when I went to volunteer on his campaign, I was really excited about. His view on the war and his focus on healthcare, but I didn't sort of think of him as a left wing firebrand. And it was a little strange even to see him being portrayed as that, as this, um, as this radical outsider. Mm-hmm. Cause that's just not who he is. Um, as you say, not who he is ideologically and not who he had been as a governor. I do think there are some. There's there's something that's similar and that it probably does come from the the uh, Vermont roots in some way. Is some real comfort. Both uh, Governor Dean and Bernie Sanders are incredibly comfortable with, um, or have shown they're uncomfortable with letting go of power in their process. So, letting grassroots people do a lot of things without a kind of check. And I I sometimes wonder if that comes out of the congregational rural Vermont tradition of incredible decentralized power. And there's also, again, they're very different ideologically, but a similarity in a kind of um, straightforward lack of pomp that they both have. You know, Howard Dean, I forget how, how many years exactly, but was still wearing the same suit he'd been wearing for 20 years. And Bernie Sanders is kind of famously rumpled. And so they're similar in those ways. D- deeply different, as you say, ideologically. And I mean, I got to say that Bernie Sanders having national support in the way that he did totally shocked me. Um, certainly having followed his career in Vermont, I didn't expect anything.
1: Um, but one of the things that I think is really interesting about the the dean to Obama to Sanders line, if, if you want to draw a line there, is that, as you say, I think they all have very different styles of politics. They all have different ideologies uh, to, to some degree or another. But, but the one thing they share, even though they articulate it in different ways, is a an incorruptibility might be going too far. But but there were ways Dean in confronting the party establishment and raising all these money from small donors. Barack Obama, with his hope and change, also coming from outside initially the party establishment, sort of a new face in, in American politics. And Sanders, who has been sort of a Democratic gadfly for a long time, all of them were sort of small donor financed, at least to some large degree. Obama obviously had a fair amount of big donor money too. And w- what seems sort of interesting to me is that The people, the the politicians who are able to exist in that reformist space, they can have a lot of different ideologies and actually different levels of confrontation with the system, but they all need to have some way of signaling to the voters that I am not corrupted by the system in the way these other people are. And that that seems to me to be the sort of tie between them all.
0: That's really interesting. I hadn't really thought about Governor Dean as being connected to that line, but I I certainly see what you're saying. And I would just sort of add to that, that I think that the markers of not being corrupted or the, the public demand for those markers has changed so that you need a lot more evidence that you're really not one of them. Um, and it'd be interesting if, you know, Governor Dean ran today, whether he would, he would be sort of considered to have those reformist characteristics. Because one of the things that I certainly see when I talk, not just to young people, but to people who are really independents, people who are really disaffected with politics, is they want to see, they want to see their politicians name names. They're not, if you say you're an economic populist, people's eyes roll. Like, yeah, sure, you're an economic populist. Everybody says they're an economic populist. You you say you fight for the working people, fine. But what I, what I heard a lot is one of the reasons that people trusted Bernie is that he was actually willing to name names of, of big corporations that um people felt were in opposition it was was kind of a a badge as you say sort of a signifier that he was a serious reformer i mean it's one of the dangerous things about this revolutionary moment we're in is that people get more and more cynical and they demand you know higher and higher degrees of proof that you're not you're not you're not one of them you're not a corruptible
1: and and trump has this too i mean he fought his own party he fights the media all all that matters this has been a somewhat um winding Road but but the but one reason I wanted to establish this as kind of a baseline for the conversation is that there's a lot I want to talk to you about your lawsuit you're involved in against Donald Trump um some of the work you've been doing on monopolies, but I wanted to begin with corruption and the role it's playing in American life. you've written a fantastic book on this, and the thing that I think is sort of interesting about anti-corruption politics as practiced by the, the politicians who are clearly connecting with the public on it, and then corruption in politics as it has been defined by the people the power to legally define it are, are so different, right? I mean, we are seeing anti-corruption politics It is people are so skeptical of the system that simply being able to say, fuck off to your own party, right? The idea that you would even be influenced by your party is corruption. Right? That makes people uncomfortable. And then with the Supreme Court, where it's like, unless you have handed somebody a bag (laughs) with a dollar sign on it, there's no corruption. So, why don't we begin here? What is, how is corruption thought of by the framers? And how is it defined in American jurisprudence today?
0: Great. So, great question. So important. Uh, I think so important as we're now struggling with country in a crisis at the founding at the at the uh, constitutional convention corruption was really the topic of the convention they actually talked about corruption more than they talked about internal violence which was a big topic at the time you know shay's rebellion they talked about it more than they talked about the threat of violence from outside other foreign countries uh, coming in and attacking having decided to form a country out of our states really in some ways if, if not the, one of the, one of the major themes of the convention is how can we protect against corruption?
1: Why were and, they so concerned with that?
0: Well, they were smart, first of all. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, but um, they were concerned because that's what they had seen in England. They had seen it creeping into the states, the intrigues and corruption creeping into the, the new states. And then also there's this historical accident, which is that Gibbon's um, history of the fall of Rome actually came out – During the Articles of Confederation and during the pre-constitutional period, so the framers were reading Gibbon as it came out as this sort of gripping story of how this once great republic, Rome, had been rent apart and torn apart by the internal corruption in Rome. So there's literary reasons and historical reasons and then their own struggles with England all informed that and and what they're saying was actually fairly traditional if you even go back to aristotle though which is that it is the fate of all republics to be threatened by corruption and this is the the central struggle of um of a republic is to to keep corruption at bay so later when alexander hamilton was talking about uh, the constitutional convention he said we tried to erect every practicable obstacle to corruption you know this was sort of the task or um, when Patrick Henry was uh, talking about England, he said, you know, they had, they basically had it right. He said, it's the finest fabric that history has ever reared, but it was rent apart by corruption. So, they really saw it as the threat to self-government. And when they talked about corruption, they were not thinking about how many times somebody violates a bribery law. Um, they were thinking about when those in public power use that public power for private ends. So, just, I mentioned Aristotle, but I think it's always worth Going back to Aristotle, it's frequent. Always. always. Aristotle described six forms of government. As you may recall, the three ideal types and the three uh, corrupted types.
1: Thank you for suggesting I might recall that, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I I appreciate your confidence in me.
0: I have complete confidence. And the difference between the ideal types and the corrupted types, so the one is the monarchy, that's the ideal type and the corrupted type is the tyrant, or the uh, aristocracy is the ideal type, and the corrupted type is the oligarchy. The language with the masses governing is a little more awkward because they actually called the corrupted type the democracy. But the difference between the two is that the monarch-
1: Wait, what was the ideal type called in the, in the masses governing?
0: It's something like, I mean, the translation isn't perfect, but you call it a, a, a polity or timocracy, brotherly love-
1: Uh, Oh, interesting. Okay.
0: But the basic thing that – I mean,
1: uh, obviously, I recalled that. I'm just asking for the audience. (laughs) The
0: the basic difference between the two is the monarch looks out for the interest of the public, and the tyrant looks after his own interests. Or in the oligarchy and um, aristocracy, and aristocracy is a rule by the few, but they care about the public. And so, that's what – when they were talking about corruption, they were saying, when those in power care about their own interests – we don't care whether you're violating a criminal statute. And in fact, it's kind of crazy. There's this modern tendency to look, to have what you might call a positivist approach, where you say, it's only corrupt if it's against the law. And the thing that's that's crazy about that and strange about that is it means that if, if you're in a deeply corrupt society that hasn't outlawed bribery, then bribery isn't corrupt. It becomes circular. Um, so you can't really look to the laws themselves. You have to look to the intentions of the leaders.
1: And so, uh, I want to uh, because I want to get to Citizens United and the way it's being defined now. I just want to sort of sharpen this a little bit more. Sure. What would you say if you just had to put it down as definition? Yes. Was their definition of corruption
0: when those in public power use that power for private ends?
1: What does private mean there?
0: Selfish, narrow, their own.
1: How do you define what is my end? Right, because one thing human beings are great at. Yes. Is Imagining that uh, my ends right. are the country's ends, or but you can you can structure this more decently, right? I, I believe it was. I, I could be wrong, but I think it's cool that you said the business of America is business, mm-hmm. right? And I don't know the exact context of that quote, but he could have really meant it, right? That you know whatever is good for, or as it as it was said at a different point, whatever is good for GE is good for America. So how does how do you separate the great. private and the great? Public? So
0: I actually and. And I, I think this is really important because in some ways, these c- contemporary debates that we're having about the meaning of corruption actually go down to a view of human nature. So, I think we have to I'd start with human nature. Um, this is very broad, but you can look at the founders as taking a side in the fight between Hobbes and Montesquieu. So, Hobbes had a view of human nature as fundamentally egotistical, self-seeking, and kind of openly so. Um, yeah, you mask some of it and you think it's good for others, but that people are always only going to seek their own interests. Montesquieu and the framers thought that people were capable of serving the public interest, capable of serving their own interest. Um, and the question is, what kind of structures do you have that encourage people to be do more public interest serving and less private interest serving? You're asking a kind of evidentiary question like, you know, how do we know? And the reason this question is so important is because to some degree, it's incredibly hard to know when you see a corrupt act. I could see you doing something and I may guess that it's a corrupt act, but I will never know that it's a corrupt act. However, I will know that if there's a 100 different people taking money in a campaign context and uh, then making policy decisions, I'm not going to know which ones are corrupted by that money taking. Maybe even if I knocked on their soul, I wouldn't know, you know, because they may, as you suggest, hide from from themselves their true intention. But if I set up a system where you have to spend your time begging for money, I can make you a strong bet that a lot of those people are taking money and then switching their position because of that money. So that you actually, um, because of their view of corruption, because of, in some ways, the difficulty of knowing of a particular instance of corruption – you actually had to have laws that just made corruption less likely, not laws that, uh, after the fact, criminalized corruption. Does that make sense? Yeah.
1: And and so, this, I think, is a good bridge to the Citizens United basket of decisions, because yeah. it's a bunch of different decisions. But but I'd love you to talk about that for, for a couple of minutes, because the thing that is so remarkable to me about those decisions is... I could really imagine having gotten to the end result they got to by asking what I would consider to be the wrong question. By saying, well, it just is not acceptable under the First Amendment to regulate spending money on politics for any reason. And so, here we go. This is what we've got. Uh, instead, they ask what I think of as the right question. They sort of set up this test that we should be able to regulate money in politics to protect against both corruption and the appearance of corruption. And then somehow having asked a reasonable question, they come up with the most insanely unreasonable answer I could possibly imagine about what constitutes the appearance of corruption. So how did they – (laughs) where did they get and how did they get there?
0: Oh, wow. Well, they – it starts with a very uh, important case, Buckley versus Valeo, a 1976 case. Uh, you know, Benjamin Franklin thought the country could resist corruption for 200 years. you sort of joked that he didn't know he'd get it that precisely right. But it starts with this 1976 case, Buckley versus Valeo, which is a very hastily written case. And in that case, why the, hastily written? Actually, a lot of election laws are uh, election law cases are hastily written because you want to figure out what rules apply before the election. And in that case, the court comes down with a decision analyzing the um, post-Watergate reforms, the, the uh, election law reforms, and coming up with a, a split approach, saying we're going to treat campaign contributions in one way and allow regulations limiting campaign contributions in one way, and we're going to treat uh, regulations regarding campaign expenditures in another We've been living inside this world for 41 years, and yet nobody on the court likes it. So, um, you're right to say it's kind of a weird structure. Everything about the structure is weird. There's been a 5-4 bounce back and forth, but never enough of a majority to actually overturn the fundamental structure.
1: Okay, so I just want to reflect this back you because this is really helpful for me and I want to make sure I understand it. So, what you're saying is that – the question was not structured by this court.
0: Right, the yeah.
1: Being able to regulate for the appearance of corruption, that's just where they have to – they have to take that as a given because they don't have either the interest or the votes to revisit Buckley v. Vallejo.
0: To revisit – and even within their own co- coalitions, they can't necessarily revisit the underlying structure. So, but, the structure is corruption yeah. plus appearance of corruption. Um, they then fight within – among each other and even within their own factions about what is the meaning of corruption and what is appearance of corruption. But it's led to some really weird things because a lot of people think, hey, we should also care about, say, political equality, right? That might be a concern. But political equality isn't corruption. So instead, you get people arguing who really care about political equality, but they'll say, oh, but that's corruption. They'll call all kinds of things corruption so they can count it in the corruption box. And then on the other side, there are people who basically just don't believe in campaign finance regulation. And so they've whittled down the meaning of corruption to mean almost nothing, to mean what they call quid pro quo corruption, um, and not understanding what its historical meaning is. because what is, that's What is
1: quid pro quo corruption?
0: Great question. I think it's the, uh, the court thinking that it, it sounds specific because it's Latin when it's not in fact that specific itself. The Sixth Circuit once said uh, – not all quids are made of the same stuff because the definition of quid pro quo corruption itself has been so disputed for several years in criminal law. The court in the the conservative part of the court, in an effort to narrow corruption, has started to say corruption only means quid pro quo corruption. What's funny about that is quid pro quo is actually a Latin term that applies to contract law, not criminal what law. What does it mean? Uh, relative equality of exchange,
1: Quid pro quo means relative equality of exchange? Yeah. Oh, I would have thought it was something snappier than that. It kind of sounds <laughs> like, it's like right. this for that or something. Right, right. That's, like this for that, that is another way.
0: You can say this for that. <laughs> but I actually, I do think that there's something kind of funny happening here where it sounds like, oh, we're just doing quid pro quo. That sounds like a manageable standard. There are clear lines there just because it's Latin, Yeah. right? Um, but they've narrowed it and it appears that what the current court thinks is quid pro quo corruption, which they think is the only kind of corruption is when there has been um, an explicit exchange. So I say, Ezra, I will give you this campaign donation. In exchange, will you promise to vote against the TPP? You know, it's um, really, really explicit. And but, so basically – just we, to yeah. – because I
1: just want to hit the boundaries of this a little bit. If I am a, an anti-TPP trade group yes. called Burn the TPP to the Ground, <laughs> right? and I max out – to your campaign, yes, and to your pack, yes, and to whatever else I can think of that you might enjoy. But we have not somehow publicly signed a contract, and then you come out and you vote against the TPP. That is not quid pro quo corruption.
0: That's correct. Yeah, and and that is the state of our current right. That's what happens system. all the time. <laughs> that happens all like the time. Just,
1: it, it, that that to me is a crazy thing that they did. Yeah, this idea that um. Just giving campaign donations when you clearly have a rooting interest, and maybe you're giving them to everybody on all sides of an issue, Yeah, that doesn't create the appearance of corruption. It's like they've never spoken to a yeah. human being. <laughs> right.
0: Now that's what you feel like. And right, if they're going to use appearance, not just corruption, then what what do they mean by appearance? Um, and there's been some really uh, interesting social science research on this, um, but basically, who, whose appearance? because lots of people of course think this entire system is corrupt but they aren't they aren't willing to call the system corrupt and to be fair to the supreme court the mccormick case was the case um i think it was in the early 80s that decided that campaign contributions would have a different standard a looser standard um and basically they said if we if we don't allow that we don't have any other way to fund campaigns uh, so we can't criminalize what is the most daily practice of campaigns right now. So one of the things that's been r- really interesting is there's two areas of corruption law that the Supreme Court has been narrowing. It's been narrowing uh, corruption law in one sense, in that it c- continues to strike down anti-corruption rules because they are violative of the First Amendment. At the same time, it's also been narrowing bribery law. And um, in each category of case it says go look at the other category of case to deal with it like in this citizens united it says if you have a problem with this use bribery law to address these um, issues and the citizens are left with very little because we have neither robust um, anti-bribery protections nor robust campaign finance rules
1: so one of the things that I, I want to point out because i think it's interesting and i think it's important is there's a, a kind of crucial difference between the way you phrase how the founders thought about corruption and what we're looking at here. And that is that the founders, again, from, from the way you desc- described it, were thinking about corruption on the part of the lawmaker. Uh, is the lawmaker or the public official working in selfish interest? Appearance of corruption, in theory, is thinking about It on the part of the voter or just the the citizen, right? Does does this system look rotten to you? And one, that's just is a big shift. But two, what's so strange is that it would seem the shift to the latter would end up with much more aggressive forms of anti-corruption jurisprudence and, and, and legislation. I mean, when I talk to people about American politics, I sometimes feel bad for politicians who get a ton more guilt by association than I think they often deserve, right? Almost nothing they do is taken at face value, right? Even if it was like something they deeply believed in because everything looks corrupt when there's so much money flowing in and out of the system. And and so I know this is a dumb question, but how is the Supreme Court able with a straight face to look at the way Americans think about politics? Just look at the way they talk about it all the time. Look at what happens when you pull them on it and say that, they're not concerned about the appearance of corruption within not just the system we had a couple of years ago but they're willing to open it up even further
0: yeah i mean what y- you could say that the court is disingenuous you could say that th- when the court says appearance of corruption they're then piggybacking their own definition of corruption so they don't mean do a lot of people think it's corrupt they mean do a lot of people think there's a quid pro quo exchange
1: Although they do yeah. think that,
0: <laughs> right? I see what you're saying. I mean, what yeah. I just see but, 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 but I've actually tried to figure out this court as well. In particular, again, it's a it's a five four split, and with a different Supreme Court, had Hillary Clinton been elected, depending on who she she nominated, with a different Supreme Court, Citizens United could have been overturned, and then quite possibly Buckley and the other cases that led up to Citizens United. But what I've tried to understand is these five members of the court, what really, really drives them, and I think there's here's, here I'll just throw out some hypotheses because looking into the hearts of Supreme Court justices is not easy. One is that they're actually kind of naive um, about government, and they kind of think everything's going to be okay. So I think of this as kind of a post um, especially post Berlin wall a set of beliefs, an end of history idea that Yeah, there's some corruption problems, but fundamentally, we've got domestic tranquility, we're providing for the common defense, you know, the preamble of the Constitution is met, we've got a stable state, everything's okay. So they aren't that worried. And again, this isn't doesn't answer your question about how can they say there's no appearance of corruption. It answers the question of like, how can they not be worried about what's happening in the world and the, the uh, level of, disres- of um, disaffection on the part of uh, citizens. Another is a belief that democracy itself, and this drives some of the neoliberal thinking is that democracy itself may not be the best way to figure out who gets what goods, and the marketplace is a better way to allocate goods and services. And that they actually, it's not that they think there isn't an appearance of corruption, it's they think that democracy itself is always corrupt, so deeply corrupt, that our little rules and regulations won't, um, won't help. And then another more sort of intellectually honest way is to say what you were saying earlier, which is they just are First Amendment absolutists. And, and think any time the government is telling any entity not to speak, we've got a problem.
1: So then let's back out from the imperfect place we've ended up to, to where we should be. If we viewed corruption, you, you have a very nice line in your, in your book where you say that I am trying to bring corruption back, not as a societal ill, but as an idea, something we fight and worry about. And you say you hope that, Courts and citizens will recognize the anti-corruption principle as a foundational American principle. Okay, let's say we did that. Let's say we all agreed. Zephyr's right. <laughs> anti-corruption principle is foundational. How does society change? You've appointed the Supreme Court. Congress is listening to you. What what, what are we dealing Sounds with? Sounds
0: great. Right. So I think one of the most fundamental things we need to do is change the way that we fund elections. In some ways, we've been just hobbling along with lots of imperfect ways of funding elections, jumping from one type, which is problematic to another, and then banning things, but not actually building anything. So uh, basically, the patronage system was how we funded elections for a long time. You know, I get an office and I give you a job. And uh, you as my employee, have to give me a percentage of your income to fund my elections. So we ban that and then don't replace it with anything. Um, And what it what came into that void was privately financed uh, elections, initially corporately financed elections, and that was banned – directly corporately financed elections. That was then banned. Can
1: you give me – both of those you just explained a very yeah. interesting – How widespread was patronage funding? And then when you say direct corporate funding, give me some examples of what you mean.
0: So uh, patronage funding was the way that our initial political parties were built. I mean, this really came out of the um, entrepreneurs, political entrepreneurs in the uh, Jacksonian era, building parties which hadn't existed in the deep infrastructure since before that time, the 1820s. And broadsheets, local meetings, all of that was funded through staffers of the winners paying the parties and then um, in the 1880s there begins an anti-patronage movement which then both federally and in the states um, happens at slightly different times and the 1880s on the federal level you then see big corporations come in and mckinley's campaign manager would go to the big banks and say you owe x percentage um you got to pay that percentage as that's just part of the Part of the uh, cost of doing business, because we're going to get into office. And then in 1907, the Tillman Act bans those direct corporate contributions. And actually, you don't see the same level as a percentage of GDP of campaign funding. Until the 1980s. So the Tillman Act actually had a huge impact with really shutting down the corporate funding. And then you see in the 1980s and 90s, corporate funding coming in, in other ways, and also private financing elections really blowing up. There's this kind of sweet spot in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, where people are, people's campaigns are financed privately. But there's an incredibly robust local media and people are primarily, citizens are primarily getting their information from media sources, not from paid advertising. During this time, if you talk to Congress members from that time or read about them, they're fundraising. You know, they have a few events a year and then one week of making some phone calls. Uh, even through the 80s, the fundraising is two weeks a year. Which <laughs> so is sounds wonderful.
1: Well, what is it now?
0: Uh, now it's 30 to 70 percent of the time. The, the time. 3270? 30-T-O-70. So depending on your Congress member.
1: So yeah, so right, it goes yeah. from a third to more <laughs> right, than two. Th- yeah, th- I just wanted yeah. to make sure I was hearing yeah. the level of and, spread there right, correctly. Yeah.
0: And, and I mean, these are in competitive races, it is the primary job of Congress members and any Congress member who wants to move up within their own committee structure. It is the primary job of the Congress member.
1: Uh, I was listening to an interview with Senator Al Franken the other day, and in this interview, he sang his fundraising song. He used to do this so often (laughs) to to entertain himself. He has little songs for – when he's calling, for if he leaves a message, for, I mean, you just spend a lot of time as a politician sitting in dark windowless rooms, making these calls, sort of humiliating himself. It's yourself.
0: totally, right, it's a, it's a, it's, not only is it corrupting, which is a huge problem, but it changes who goes into public office and then, like, it gets them in this habit of being kind of sycophants, you know, just calling rich people and telling them how they like their ideas. <laughs> Um, It's a kind of humiliate, as you say, humiliating idea that we as this country have said, well, what we most want are people who are really, really, really good at begging rich people to give them $2,700, the federal maximum. So we've gone through these different regimes and we're actually in a new regime now, post Citizens United. Outside money is now quickly becoming more important than personally financed money. So I ran for Congress last year. There was more money spent by super PACs than by the candidates together. And I think that's true in most um, competitive congressional races. I think it's one of the big undertold stories of 2016, actually, um, because on the presidential level, super PACs played such a weird role this year. But on the presidential level, you have so much earned media. Earned media is media that you don't pay for. That it's just a very different dynamic. In local races, I mean, our race is about $18 million more than half of that was super PACs.
1: So just to back out something you just said, because I think it's it's interesting and it, it's important. My sense of super PACs is they've been a little bit of a bust on the presidential level. 2012, they really failed. 2016, I mean, you look at Sanders, you look at Trump, then you look at what happened in the election itself. Super PACs did not perform that well. And I think some people have taken that to mean they're just sort of, they're just a bust. But it seems to me, my read of the evidence is that it's spending money on persuasion is very difficult to do in informationally rich environments i think that's right presidentials are yeah. Yeah. and pretty easy to do or at least more effective in informationally poor environments i this is going to be a very political audience and i think if i ask all for everybody here to on the spot name the member their member of the house and state legislator and if you have it state senator i think most people can't do
0: it. I play that game all the time with people. I'll just say they'll be like, oh, but you got good, such good press coverage. And I'll just turn to them and be like, tell me within five seconds, your Congress member. And these are people who read the New York Times, Washington Post, Fox, cover to cover every day.
1: I Uh, hope they're reading Vox cover to cover. uh, (laughs) Touche.
0: (laughs) Well, I had to throw it in there. But uh, you take my point. People don't – they're not following to the same degree. And the super packed down ballot story was told this past cycle as everybody's fleeing Trump, which may or may not have been the reason. You know, Everybody's fleeing the top of the ticket, Mm -hmm. why there was a lot of uh, money going down ballot. But it's not going away. It's it's not it's um it was extremely effective. Our guess was that about twenty percent of local voters were getting their information from local news. So that means the only other information they have is: Are you a D or are you an R? And um, campaign and and then funded, uh, paid media.
1: All right. So what would you do?
0: Okay. So change the way you fund elections to publicly financed elections. There's different models on this. Um, you know, I imagine if you had a constitutional convention right now. And it's not that the founders are all wise on all things, but we would be talking about publicly financed elections. But I think you should probably allow it in a federalist way, where allow different states to experiment with different kinds of um, publicly financed models. Uh, New York City has a model where if I get $5, it gets matched six to one. So it's really transformed politics in the city. One of the big ways is there's a lot more challengers, because people uh, non-incumbents can uh, fundraise. Overturn Citizens United. I think those are the two most important, the two most important things on the direct money and politics front. But related, I think that we should also deal with the concentration of, of wealth and power. And the um, Just
1: offhandedly. We should just deal with the concentration well, of wealth and power. <laughs>
0: deal with, with the antitrust. Just while we're doing that. <laughs> <laughs> because one of the things I actually came to believe is as as firmly as I care about changing the way that we fund elections, which I'm absolutely committed to, and um, changing uh, – overturning Citizens United and Buckley versus Vallejo, which I'm also absolutely committed to. Is that um, once you allow entities to amass such incredible wealth and power, they will find other ways to use that wealth and power. So, that we also have to talk about concentration of wealth and power in the corporate sphere, not just in how they spend the money.
1: So, let me ask you my – let me raise my concern about the small donor matching. Yeah. Equilibrium. Uh Uh-huh right and in general i'm i'm supportive of these kinds of policies where you know up to $250 you get a 5 to 1 match or whatever it might be but when i think of the problems our politics has one problem certainly is is corporate and just moneyed influence no doubt about it but another problem our politics has is an increasing pull towards i don't just think it's sort of i think it gets shorthanded as the extremes but but i don't think it quite is i think it's a style of hyper-confrontational, hyper-partisan politics that can exist with different kinds of ideologies behind it. And, you know, I've seen some evidence, and intuitively it makes sense as well, that the candidates who really thrive in small donor environments are the sort of highly polarizing, highly ideological, highly confrontational. Michelle Bachman was a monster of small donors. like She was just excellent at small donor fundraising. Alan West was great. Um, Alan Grayson was great. right? Folks who, I think if you just stalked American politics with them, <laughs> there are ups and downs to that. Right. But it would be a real war of all against all.
0: Right. No, uh, I, I get that concern. So there's, there's two things. One is, I just want to be clear about how bad it is now. It's not just that it's 30 to 70% of the time. It is actually impossible without the very rare candidate who takes fire on small dollar donations. It's impossible to be a candidate for federal office. I don't want to say impossible. My average contribution was $19 (laughs) in the last race. But it's very difficult without really, really saying things that are acceptable to the wealthiest 1% or 2%. And so that we have a real problem of both parties framing their language and their rhetoric and their ideas and their creativity to a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of America. And I got to say, like, the um, anti-union sentiment among elites is incredibly strong, and that's true on left and right. That's not representative, but you're spending all your time um, with people who have a the capacity to make or break your campaign. The problem is quite serious. It's really shaping our policy. The other is that the good small-dollar funding models only allow for uh, matches to exist within the jurisdiction that you are running in, and that constrains a lot of what you're talking about, because what you're talking about is absolutely right, that on a national level, you'll see small-dollar funding sort of swarm to candidates who have the sharpest or strongest or loudest, sometimes wonderful, sometimes terrifying voice. But on the local level, if you're talking about Congress, if you're talking about um, state houses, if you only provide the match uh, locally, you have an incredibly different incentive system. So if you're running for state house and you're only getting a match from people within your district who give you a contribution, your your day is going to be different. Instead of spending your day talking to people in New York City or Washington, D.C. about what they think about teachers' unions, you're going to be spending your day in the district talking to anybody who can give you $100, and that's going to be a much broader ideological spectrum. And is that, in fact, kind of forces the kind of conversation that we want to have happen.
1: Let me ask you now about another kind of corruption. Mm-hmm. So, we recently had an election, as you might have heard, and one of the effects of that election was we all became experts on the emoluments clause, which nobody had known about before. Right. You are an actual expert <laughs> yeah. on the emoluments clause, and, and you're suing Donald Trump over it. So what is the emoluments clause, and how has Trump run afoul of it?
0: So I'm one of the lawyers on um, a suit representing Crew, a watchdog group in Washington, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. And a few other plaintiffs suing Donald Trump for violating both the Foreign Emoluments Clause and the Domestic Emoluments Clause. These are two clauses in the Constitution that are anti-corruption clauses. The Foreign Emoluments Clause prohibits federal officers from taking presents, emoluments, offices or titles of nobility of any kind whatever from a foreign government without congressional consent. And this is... um, I got interested in this clause when I started writing about corruption because it was actually... A very American clause, like the, this this clause saying that you couldn't take gifts and emoluments from foreign right, governments. Hold on, before
1: we go further, you, yeah. I, I'm going to need you to, to define the word emoluments. Oh,
0: yes. Okay, sure.
1: <laughs> and emol- keep, we keep saying it. I keep falling down and the you hole. Keep, and
0: you keep thinking, what kind of French moisturizer yeah, is like, that? Yeah, like
1: I am extremely good at nodding confidently while people say things I don't understand, but nobody <laughs> can see me doing that here, okay. so. Uh,
0: you know, emoluments is a benefit, It's a benefit. And if you look at the uh, word at the time, I think we now have this sense like, ah, this strange word. Um, But it was used in all kinds of documents um, uh, at the time, and it covers all kinds of different benefits and profits and payments.
1: It does include profits, because it it feels like there might be a difference between the king of Norway, you know, hands you a bejeweled pencil – and you have a you know a, an international frozen food conglomerate and you make money from. Such and such. Uh, The one thing I want to establish as we go into this, because I think it's important for thinking about Trump, is that one way of thinking about this is that it's about gifts. It's about something that a foreign government just gives you to to make you feel good. And another issue is Donald Trump has a hotel that has his name on it and his face on it and his name on it again in Scotland and in Istanbul and over and over and over again. But arguably, and that hotel can get money from the government, it can get tax breaks, all kinds of things can happen. But they're not – you could argue they're not giving him a gift. He's just a businessman who has international
0: Yeah, so the the clause um, prohibits both gifts and emoluments, and it's really important that it includes both of those prohibitions because it's very clear that it's not just about the gifts. It would have been a very different clause if it just says that the federal officer cannot take presents of any kind, whatever, from foreign governments. Um, Instead, it says presents – uh, emoluments, uh, titles of nobility, and, and and offices. And if you look at the cases of the time or the understanding of emoluments at the founding, it was used to describe commercial transactions as well as uh, payments in relationship to holding an office. So it's a very broad understanding. It starts broad and then it gets broader because it's one of the very few clauses in the Constitution that tells you how to read it. It has this phrase, of any kind, whatever. So, like, if you had any doubt about the scope of this word, we're going to read the broadest possible understanding of the clause. Now, you might say, oh, dear, what are we going to do about the king of Norway giving individual pens? You know, that'll sort of mess up foreign relations if the king of Norway isn't allowed to give a pen. And the answer is, well, you actually – the king of Norway can give you a pen and you can keep it as long as you get the consent of Congress. And what Congress has done is develop in the presence area, not in the emoluments area, but in the presence area, is develop a basically body of law that provides for de minimis exceptions so that you don't have to turn to the king and say, I'm not taking this right now. But if it's under a couple hundred dollars, you can just say, thank you. But once you rise to the level of over a couple hundred dollars, you just have to go through a procedure in order to be able to take the present.
1: But – and there's something interesting about this here, that you say in the book, um, which is that this was actually un- unusual. This is – a Americans did this and it caused a lot of diplomatic confusion and friction for all – you have – I think this was actually an op-ed you wrote, but you give this example of President Martin Van Buren having to write a letter to the imam of Muscat telling him he cannot accept horses, pearls, a Persian rug, shawls, and a sword – because it was against the law. And and the imam is offended because other countries do have much more of a gift culture. They do offer titles onto each other. And that that this is something that exists in American history for a purpose and is part of our distinct character.
0: Absolutely. It was called a fundamental law of our republic in that uh, letter when Van Buren was writing back. There's a version of this in the Articles of Confederation And there were a series of gifts given by the French king. And it actually caused some real problems because the diplomats didn't want to give offense. And it's not just that they didn't want to give offense. You're a totally new country that may or may not survive, right? And you're willing to put this principle above the fear of causing some problems with foreign relations. It just shows you how incredibly important this was to Americans to reject what they saw as the corrupt culture of Europe. And so there's a, there's some pride in the early understanding that we're going to stand up against that corrupt culture. We're going to reject corruption and we're going to reject foreign influence. But also they're pretty smart. They get it that foreign countries are going to try to influence policy by giving gifts or by having financial relationships in the commercial sphere with the officers and that that can actually really have an influence.
1: So, what are the emoluments that Donald Trump is receiving?
0: Um, I'll just go through a few. One, um, you may be familiar with Trump Tower. It seems to be in the news fairly regularly. I've Um, heard of it. So, there's two foreign governments who are tenants in Trump Tower. One is the commercial – well, one is basically the government of China. The Commercial and Industrial Bank of China is one of the largest tenants in Trump Tower. That lease is up for um, renegotiation in 2019. So we have money from the Chinese government going into Donald Trump's pocket every month and the possibility of the Chinese government using their leverage with that negotiation to leverage foreign policy. That's one one area. A second area is the uh, apprentice. Uh, the royalties for the apprentice and the celebrity apprentice and the new celebrity apprentice flow from, in at least two cases, foreign governments because the royalties come from the governments itself. So the question is, if you look at foreign governments, it's not any foreign money. It's not private foreign money. What we're concerned about is foreign governmental money. Um, then there's the other example that you mentioned, which is that Trump Organization has developments, and that there are financial benefits to those developments in Saudi Arabia and other countries that come from the government to the Trump Organization. One thing that that uh, more likely falls under the the gifts part of the presence part of the emoluments clause um, is the trademarks that um, that Trump um, received just immediately after uh, agreeing to continue to support the one china policy so trump organization had been seeking trademarks in china for many many years Uh, finally came out saying we do support the one china policy and within a week gets the trademarks oh i didn't know that Yeah, gets the trademarks approved
1: that doesn't seem fishy at all (laughs) <laughs> that seems totally normal,
0: <laughs> right? And so, the, but to your question about what's an emolument and what's a present, that looks to be more like a, a present because it's something that was a pure gift. It's not part of a commercial transaction. It's just here you go for for helping us out on one China.
1: And one of the things that is unnerving about this is, in addition to that, there are all these ties and linkages, and, and given that we don't have his tax returns, there's a lot we may not know. Trump really just does seem to be the kind of guy who, if you make sure that your biggest parties happen in his hotels, and you sort of show that he's great, that it's a non-trivial part of foreign policy, right there. I, I think
0: that's right, and I think that's the the bet that foreign governments all over the world are making.
1: I mean, like right. Saudi Arabia with that giant gold medal. <laughs> right, I know it made me so embarrassed. Yeah,
0: it should. That yeah. they
1: had. That they had pinned, like, how easy America was now going to be to manipulate.
0: Yeah, and what's important is that there's two kinds of manipulation. One is that he can be having actual open conversations that we will not find out about, that are kind of explicit deals, right? We don't know about that. And actually, this is one of the things the founders were worried about is because Charles II in the 17th century had taken a pension from the French king and in exchange – Really sold out a lot of British policy to the French. The terms of that sellout weren't made public for over a hundred years. So there could be private actual kind of transactional um, relationships that we will not find out about. But the other thing that's possible, which is what you're talking about, is Trump can be influenced without him knowing. And that's actually one of the key sort of psychological insights of the framers is that we are just, we're influenced by people who give us stuff. We're influenced by people who make us rich. And it doesn't have to be transactional. It could just be like, hey, I kind of like these people now. Um, th- th- this is just basic psychology. And so you need a procedural protection like consent of Congress to sort of put the stops on that uh, subtle kind of influence.
1: So what are the difficulties of suing a sitting president of the United States? And where does this go from here?
0: All, all that we've seen so far is the a few comments Right before Trump became president. And if you wonder about the impact of this suit, just remember that in the press conference right before he became president, he had a few things to talk about, but mostly he brought out his lawyer and a big stack of envelopes to say, don't worry, I'm not violating the Emoluments Clause. So clearly that they, and they should be, they, they have been impacted by this. After the government's reply, we'll give our own uh, reply and we'll get a sense of where they think the limits are. What we saw in January is that the Trump lawyers at the time, and this is before he's president, were saying he is going to give away all his profits from the Trump hotels that come from foreign diplomats. That's an emolument I didn't uh, talk about earlier. He's not doing that. Even if he was doing it, you don't get to you don't get to sort of sin against the Constitution and then pay a penance and say, "Hey, I'm going to put in the Treasury all this money that I should never have taken." Like you don't <laughs> sort of sort of unilaterally deciding that you don't owe, owe the IRS money and then separately giving it to the Treasury. You just right. don't you don't get to do that. But that was the approach. And the other approach they had was that they said emoluments doesn't include commercial transactions, and we already talked about that. They're wrong as a matter of history and purpose, but uh, we'll see if that's part of their uh, brief
1: going forward. But will will courts – I mean, this is just going to betray my own ignorance. I actually don't know just how difficult it is to sue the president. I oh, mean, will okay. courts give you standing or does this – is there like a – does this end up in court or do, is it a sort of long shot that you're hoping a judge will No, not at all. Offer? I mean,
0: we're, uh, we're in court in the Southern District of New York. Um, there'll be a legal fight about whether – the plaintiffs that we have have the right to sue. This is your standing question. But it's in terms of suing the president, I think the important thing to understand is we're not actually suing him for damages, which is problematic. We're just suing him for an injunction, says just stop, just stop violating the Constitution. What that means is he'd have to divest from his business interests, uh, which is what other presidents have done. I mean, this is common practice, not just for presidents, but for federal officials to divest of their interests and put them in a blind trust. And he he should have done it before, and he can do it now, and we hope the court agrees with us and says he has to do that going forward.
1: So, people, I think, hear the president's being sued for violating the Constitution, and people who are not fans of this president hope, oh, great, maybe the courts will just make him step down or something. That is not what this is. No,
0: it's not. (laughs) No. No, this is, I mean, I think there's there's a few different things. It's, really destabilizing to have your president making foreign policy decisions when his fingers are in the pie. I mean, uh, it just casts a pall on every single foreign policy decision, but it also is a problem when your president is just openly violating the constitution. I mean, that's a pro that's a rule of law problem itself to say that I don't really care about the words here. Um, and, uh, I think there's a value in him stopping, um, that has to do with just basic rule of law principles as well.
1: Uh, there, there are a lot of problems right now.
0: <laughs> yes, that's true. I,
1: I mean, this is off our topic a little bit, but we're, we're talking in the pretty immediate aftermath of the Comey testimony. Yeah. And the thing that I've been obsessing over um, since has been – what we know about Trump, put aside any questions of technical obstruction of justice, what we know about Trump, um, he's talked forever about how loyalty is a quality he most values in subordinates. He actually has in his first book a passage where he says that he prefers people who put loyalty over integrity, which is such an astonishing wow. passage. Not he says surprising, but really astonishing. He's talking yeah. about Roy Cohn, who was uh, McCarthy's sort of attack dog, Joseph McCarthy's attack dog, who's a later uh, Donald Trump mentor. And he says the great thing about Roy Cohn, there are all these guys who have all this integrity but not enough loyalty. And wow. Cohen was the opposite, <laughs> um, which most people would not say is a good thing. But so what we know happens with Comey is that Donald Trump pulls him aside and says, you know, I want your loyalty. And, and Comey gets very uncomfortable and Republicans are sort of bashing him now for not standing up enough to Trump. But what we know is the FBI director is a pretty, you know, Brave guy, hears about a lot of threats on on the daily. Has stood up to governmental pressure before, and he doesn't fold to Trump. But he does. He is made very uncomfortable, and and does not sort of push back. How many other times in our government is this happening? Who is actually giving Donald is Trump being his asked loyalty? For loyalty? Right. It makes yeah. it so you really can't trust anything in the yeah. government. I mean, it is impossible because
0: it does. It's not just a mistrust of Trump. It's a mistrust. Then, right. Yeah. So
1: Trump is named uh, Christopher Ray to be FBI director. He interviewed a large number of candidates he somehow chose ray ray is not unqualified but he's not by any means the most qualified what made him choose ray was it that they had a conversation about loyalty somehow or another and trump got the impression that ray would be loyal and and maybe that's super unfair to christopher ray Everything is under that cloud now.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's an enormous cost. And this is where you're thinking like a framer. When you said you're, you're sort of not as focused on the question of whether there's an obstruction of justice, which is a fascinating question, but it's that we can get lost in those weeds and s- instead say, do we have a structural system right now that is deeply problematic? And is there anything we can do about well, that?
1: This is something I've been talking about this with members of my staff for the last couple of days, but I think people have gotten a, a sort of confused idea of what impeachment is and for. They have, yes. That impeachment is not a legal remedy. No. Right? So this question of did Trump, like, are I've, you going- I have
0: felt that too. I felt like there's this weird kind of hunt for, if he did, then he yeah. can be impeached. And if he didn't-
1: But th- it's a political remedy. Yes. And it's- you know enough members of congress deciding that the president has done something really beyond the pale and obviously if they begin deciding that on a whim that would be very bad but this is a president who clearly fired the fbi director to squelch an investigation into russia and in his behavior has shown that pretty much everything in government can no longer be trusted as so long as he is appointing the key figures in it And, you know, you can argue whether that is what you want to activate a political remedy, but what you would be dealing with is a political remedy for a political problem. The foundations of our government have been corroded.
0: I think that's right. There's basically these three theories of impeachment. One is that it's absolutely political and they could impeach him because they didn't like his pulling out of the Paris climate Mm -hmm. deal. You know, it could be something like that. The other extreme is that that has to be tied to a particular crime. I tend to take the third approach, which is that it is um, appropriate when there's a significant violation of public trust, and that that's what high crimes and misdemeanors relates to. High, the word high in high crime or high misdemeanor being related historically in England to violations of the public trust. And so then you're not on this technical hunt, because the... The, the, the other side of the coin of the technical hunt is that every time you find a crime, then you should impeach, which also seems wrong. It's not, is there a crime or isn't there a crime? It's, is this person violating some fundamental tenets of governing? But also
1: the flip of it, I mean, crimes are, are a little bit just weird to think about with the presidency. Because as are. I understand, the president can just say, Steve Bannon, I would like you to kill three of my enemies and then pardon him. <laughs> and it isn't clear that anything has been done wrong there. Right, he has a unlimited part in power. The presidency is very powerful.
0: <laughs> so so let me walk. I, I'll have to take a second to think about that hypothetical. This but is yeah, what but one I take your broad. Yes, to, right. It,
1: as, as one person explained it to me, the the idea that the so I have seen people interpret impeachment yeah. as purely a legal mechanism i think that's right yeah, that the right. only yeah. that if the president has not committed a crime there's no activation and then the only remedy is and that, electoral. And that
0: that clearly can't be true all yeah that clearly can't be true i think less so for the for the um pardoning example because i guess what i'm resisting is is what i think is a very dangerous trumpian view which is uh, i am above the law in all of these ways he can be uh, subject to the law and still not subject to to impeachment, I mean, he, we're suing him. He's right. still subject to the law, even though there's limits on our capacity to sue. He's still subject to it. But I, but I think I really agree with your deep point, which is that it's this technical hunt is not helping us. And I think there's almost a sense that if we can find obstruction of justice, then he'll go, which is also clearly right. not true. Yeah, right? no, it has
1: it, it, it. goes both ways, right? You right. can you can find an actual crime, and it doesn't it doesn't particularly do anything. But but this to me it actually speaks to what I think of as a big theme of this conversation, which is that. There are many serious problems afflicting American politics right now. But both prior to Trump and now in, in the Trump era, one of the most severe, in my view, is the absolute pervasive appearance of corruption in all things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, e- even among people who are just normal politicians, right? I, I mean, recently, President Obama left the presidency and then gave a $400,000 speech to Cantor Fitzgerald. And Cantor Fitzgerald is not a toxic bond firm that I know of. I mean, they're not somebody who people hate in the way they've come to hate, you know, a Goldman Sachs. But it's the kind of thing where, you know, I think Obama's presumably looked at that and said, yeah, these guys are not a big deal, you know, like, I'm going to go give them a speech. But it's just, it's kind of everywhere now, and it's corrosive, and it's well, I, I, no. people.
0: He shouldn't have done it, not because it's against the law. Right. Um, and, I, and I don't need to spend a lot of time on the dangers of his particular action, but it does reflect, um, and it sort of taps into people's readiness for cynicism. Right. So, it's a saying, oh, everybody's, uh, you know, not that he's doing anything illegal, not that he is corrupt per se, but that… One might hope that he would use the incredible public platform he has and he makes enough money else else out.
1: The thing it caused me to reflect on, because then shortly thereafter, um, Hillary Clinton was was interviewed at Recode and you know, asked about the, the speeches she gave, particularly to Goldman Sachs, and she said, everybody gives these speeches, right? Like all my predecessors yeah. got to do it. And I think that's a little bit where presumably Obama's coming from, too. A lot of people did it, and Cantor Fitzgerald wouldn't have looked necessarily toxic to him, though they are a bond firm. And this kind of everybody does it. Yeah, Trump begins moving the bar in very, very different ways. But I think people like sort of step back from this, and the whole thing, the whole edifice, seems rotten to them. Even in places where it isn't, which well, I think is quite dangerous. Because there's a
0: lot of incredible public servants. Yeah. And and at one example of this, and I think it relates to your legalism point though, is um, Clinton, Hillary Clinton's foundation. Yeah. Um, that the defense of Hillary Clinton's foundation by the Clinton team and others was that it's not illegal, which is true. Uh, not illegal. Um, you know, I, I, it raises shadows of the emoluments clause, but doesn't look like an emoluments clause violation. But once you get in a world where you're saying we can do anything that isn't illegal, and it's okay, um, that's a very dangerous world. And it also suggests two different kinds of language. Uh, one of the things Mark Twain writes about as a novelist, not as an essayist, in his book, The Gilded Age, is that the language of corruption in that time really splits, where there's an elite that thinks a whole bunch of things aren't corrupt, they're just the way things are. And everybody else is saying, wait a second, the whole system is corrupt. And I think we have that kind of split of language where uh, elites just get used to things and say, that's not corrupt, that's just the way we do things.
1: It just It seems to me that if I were a politician who – Or an advisor to a politician, I would see – or fuck it, I'm not a politician, but I'm somebody who comments on politics. I have come to see the appearance of corruption, the belief in corruption on the part of the citizenry as a really big problem. And that it's not – you cannot just solve that problem by solving what is illegal.
0: No, you can't. You have yes. to
1: solve that problem by people just holding themselves exactly right. to a much higher standard, even yeah. a standard that might feel unfair. You know, a, a good example of this that I I, I think about sometimes is the, the the Trump administration has given tons of lobbyist waivers, but the Obama administration gave some too. And the Obama administration, you know, and I I was reporting on them at that time and spoke to them about this, and you know, they would say, "Listen, there are we have these jobs that are of incredible importance. We're dealing with a financial crisis. We have to re-regulate the financial industries." Um, there are people who are the best people for these positions, and it is worth more that we get those people in, even if it means giving this waiver. And in an individual case by case, that completely makes sense. And I, I listen, I hire for much less consequential positions and hiring's damn hard. <laughs> so I mean, that's difficult too. But the cumulative effect of a lot of individual decisions that don't seem that wrong is really poisonous. Um, I had Cory Booker, Senator Cory Booker, on the show recently, and he had gotten in crosswise with the left uh, because you know he had uh, he believed that a drug reimportation bill did not have enough safety mechanisms, and ultimately, him and Bernie Sanders worked it out and then came together on a bill, and, and now they have a joint proposal. But you know he was very taken aback by the degree which people, his um, critics, just wouldn't believe that he actually just believed that
0: uh, that they're they're looking for a, a financial reason it's not, yeah. not just
1: that they're looking for one they just it's i see it all the time in the way people sort of explain political behavior they just almost always assume there is one now i don't know in any given case if that's right or wrong but it just it's a terrible well, thing that people believe it so often and it probably is right a lot of the time but,
0: but it's why i it's why i actually think structural change is so important because what we then um, There are certain things that people can do right away um, in terms of revolving door, speech money, taking speech money, making a personal commitment to never never make a a policy decision based on their donor. But these are all individual things. If we're not actually dealing with the basic structure of things, if we're not actually changing the way we fund elections, if we're not actually, you know, something we haven't talked about today, but like busting up big corporations, if we're not actually dealing with the sort of fundamental roots of this uh, cynicism. I think um, there'll be some flash in the pan moments, but uh, the cynicism will only grow. So
1: I want to talk about busting up big corporations, but before I, I I want to talk about one other piece of this it is part of it that I struggle with. Um, when I think about what would count as a solution, right, uh-huh. not a solution but among solutions. Which is I think the the powerful argument one would make against this conversation that we're having right here is that big corporations are a genuine part of the economy of genuine and real interests and, 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 and a reason to um, – those interests need to be heard and reflected. But, but more than that, that it becomes very inconsistent what people who do have to participate in and, and, and deal with the economy are allowed to do. So I, I think of this sometimes you see four members of government go out and they just work for corporations they didn't regulate and people get very upset. And it's like, well, okay, like, what are you allowed to do and still be seen as someone who can act in public service? At at what point, at what point do you begin to run into a problem where the boundaries you're drawing are really a form of, of vilification? And instead of having dealt with a way of stopping the appearance of corruption, what you've really done is load the deck. So yeah, it's fine if you work for this kind of corporation, but not this one. Or it's fine if you made this much money, but not that much money. And while, you know, I I don't exactly sort of cry for the people I imagine being um, disadvantaged by this, uh, I do think that there's, uh, you know, people on the right certainly make a, a good argument that there are, you know, forms of money and forms of corporate tie that people left get upset about and that they don't and that sometimes this can be a way of sneaking in sort of ideas of who is a legitimate actor in public policy as opposed to actually dealing with corruption
0: okay so i a few things one is i don't i don't think i did a, a effective enough job explaining how transformational public financing of elections would be in so many different ways and how i think that along with revolving door and other reforms, but really publicly financed elections and overturning Citizens United are the key. Um, because the, what we really want to know is if somebody wakes up in the middle of the night, are they thinking about the network of rich people tied to Microsoft in Seattle, even though they live in Kansas, or are they thinking about their constituents? Are they really focused on the uh, – water quality and the schools of their constituents. That's what we really want to know. We want to have structures that allow for that. And right now, we have a deeply broken structure that encourages people in public office to spend their time thinking about people who are not their constituents and not representative. And that is profoundly corrupting, and we can change that. I also think it relates to the revolving door issue is that once you get in a system where you're just spending all your time talking to the wealthiest people in world history, it's very natural for you to take a job in that world. Mm -hmm. And it's actually hard to imagine the other kinds of jobs and outlets and things you can do. That's your sort of social community. And so that once you change the way you fund elections, you also change the future career paths, not just by revolving door legislation, but by the kind of culture and people that you hang out with. So I just want to be clear about how transformational that is. And then also be clear that every revolving door rule is going to leave people out in the cold for some great opportunities. And that's terrible. But it's just not that terrible. <laughs> like, it's not nearly as terrible as saving our republic, as, as the sort of threat to our republic. I mean, it's terrible. I can't go 75 miles on the highway when I want to, you know, get to somebody's wedding on time and I accept the speed limit. We accept speed limits, not as fundamental attacks on our freedom, but just as like, you know, you sometimes got to have rules that make it less likely that people are going to die. And that's how I feel about revolving door rules. And um, campaign limit rules is that we just have to have rules that make it a little more likely that people are actually going to have a voice.
1: Let's talk about breaking up corporations because one of the one of the things I'm tracking a little bit – I actually spoke to your lieutenant governor candidate uh, on this podcast. Oh, too. Oh, great. Uh, about this uh, maybe six or eight months ago. But I- I'm very interested in the rise of – anti-monopolist thinking again on the left and and the degree to which people are starting to really take this as a central political concern so uh, an essential economic concern so i wanted uh, i wanted to start the conversation this way when you worry about monopoly and rising monopoly power concentration of power what are you worried about what problem are you trying to solve
0: what i'm concerned about is is um are public government getting taken over by forms of private government? And this is a age-old concern, which, by the way, was not historically left or right. Um, has certainly been part of Republican right-wing platforms as well in American history. Thomas Jefferson wanted an anti-monopoly clause in the Constitution. The letter that he wrote to Madison about uh, wanting a, a First Amendment also included a desire for an anti-monopoly clause because he, what he was worried about is Um, publicly-enabled private power becoming a form of government. That's the deepest uh, fear. There's also a lot of secondary fears like inequality, lowering wages. Our employment rates are doing okay, but the wage depression is incredible. There's recent research that suggests that wage depression is tied to concentration. There is decrease in quality and innovation. I mean, our small business environment in the United States um, it's a pretty bad bu- uh, environment for small businesses. Our startups are down. We're behind Europe in a lot of areas. There's a recent report by really mainstream Council of Economic Advisors saying we've got a problem with entrepreneurship in this country. Um, and then if you, even if you're concerned just about prices, um, economist John Cuoco came out with a report this last year showing that mergers, uh, incredible amount of mergers – lead to higher prices as well. So there's a whole range of issues, but I actually, to me, the core is that we're getting taken over by uh, private companies and they're not acting like the entrepreneurial well, open. Just
1: what, when you say we're getting taken over, because I actually want to separate out the political and the economic okay. here. In, in, in that maybe,
0: maybe that's where we're going to disagree.
1: No, but yeah, so maybe we can't. But I guess if the question is we're getting taken over by private corporations, then one might say, well, what we should really just do is publicly finance elections rather than break up Google. Whereas if the question is, yes. markets are becoming closed to new entrants, then you might not be able to do it okay. by by anything but like direct antitrust. Prevention. I don't
0: think you can. I don't think you can separate those two. And I'll just give you one example um, uh, you may or may not have heard about. It. If you saw the John Oliver special a year and a half ago on chickenization, you might have. But in the chicken industry, they're independent, quote unquote, independent contractors, small businesses that sell their chickens to Tyson. In reality, these small businesses are completely controlled by Tyson, right? They, they have to use the feed that Tyson tells them to use. They have to use the eggs that Tyson tells them to use. They have to – actually, that Tyson gives them. They have to use the exact specs.
1: Well, you, you've, you've generally picked the the – I'm vegan and you've okay. picked the, the <laughs> industry that I burn like large and small to the ground. Okay, great.
0: <laughs> great. So, be, so, so, so just to make you like it even less, <laughs> the the chicken industry – has this problematic relationship with these independent contractors. And the Obama administration decides to have hearings on what's going on with contractors. They have hearings all around the countries. They're show trials because the chicken farmers, and I've talked to several reporters and one chicken farmer, um, who, uh, several reporters who reported on this and a chicken farmer who talked about himself. Um, they said, we're not going to show up to a hearing telling, uh, the government what's wrong with Tyson because then we're going to lose all our money because then they're not going to give us good chicks and they're not going to distribute our goods. So you have this new form of political fear. This is called chickenization actually, and it's spreading to the beef industry. Um, So the beef is actually modeling its, uh, its own industry after that. But I'd argue that in industry after industry, we have a chickenization model. Like when I've gone on MSNBC, I think twice people have said, do you really have to bring up the, the the, the Comcast time Warner merger, you know, the, the, that, um, that these are people sort of quietly saying, I hope you don't talk about my boss on air um, uh, because there's a, a growing silencing by a handful of big corporations about things that we can and can't say. I will
1: say as a, as a company that has investment from Comcast, <laughs> we, we say and a we lot of bad things yes. <laughs> about Comcast, actually. Uh, but, but I do – I actually want to separate two questions there because there's yeah. – what I think of is the Comcast Time Warner or um, who is it, AT&T? whos is AT&T going to merge with? Somebody. The last year there were
0: forty-eight thousand uh, mergers. Twenty fifteen and twenty sixteen were the highest two number of mergers uh, uh, in uh, American history.
1: One one yeah. of the things I find really interesting and, and and have been you know pretty persuaded on myself is that we off, like people are used to thinking about monopolies, uh, and they're not that used to think about monopsonies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where it's sort of the supplier. Yeah, who is exerting control downstream. Um, and that sounds like what the the Tyson situation is. It was certainly, I mean, now Amazon is a m- massive competitor, but Walmart really had, and maybe to some degree still does have this power to really set policy, and, and to it's set kinda, wages. You know,
0: you, all the all the analogies fall apart a little bit, but so I, I don't want to say it is feudal, but it's feudal like when mm-hmm. Amazon is telling Coca Cola if you want to be on our shelf. You gotta use the sweetener that we want you to use. That's not Coca Cola acting as an independent business. You know, that's Coca Cola. Under – so this is Walmart. Under Walmart. I I do often
1: worry about Coca-Cola being underpowered.
0: (laughs) But but it's a a question of sort of governments and power. And you started with saying we should separate the political and economic. And I actually think that's that's where we mess up, is understanding that the economic threats are tied to the political threats. But here's
1: why I I said that, because I think this gets to something interesting. One of the things as I read it, and I am not an expert in this space, but that happened was there became the belief that if you could just – show that a particular monopoly or a particular concentration, particular firm or particular merger would not hurt consumers, that it was fine.
0: Great. That yeah. if you
1: could say, hey, the economic effects of this are okay, um, then there's nothing to be done about it because really, who is the loser? And then there's this other, what I think of as a somewhat cross-cutting argument that You know what? It might be that Walmart is pushing prices down. It might be that there are advantages to the consumer. But in a macro sense, in an aggregate sense, all of these monopolies create a politically imbalanced sphere Mm -hmm. that over the long run has um, negative effects. It feels like when you merge those, if what you're trying to address is sort of specific economic problems, then oftentimes you might just be better off addressing the specific economic problem, right? If you're worried that wages are too low at the bottom, maybe you just want to do a minimum wage increase and an EITC increase. But if you're worried that the political system will consistently be biased um, in a harmful way because of the the power of these corporations, then maybe that doesn't get you that far.
0: Yeah. Um, so I, I- – a few different things. One is I, I want to sort of emphasize what you described because it's really important. It's a real revolution. You can call it the Consumer Welfare Revolution. And um, antitrust laws, Sherman Act and the Clayton Act, are written really broadly actually. So they're They're almost like constitutional clauses that they just use the word, you know, monopolization, and then it's up for judges to fill in the content of what that word means. And different judges at different times have filled that in differently. Although for most of history, it was really clear that it covered a lot of what's happening in America today. Um, In the 70s, you really see this revolution where the courts say the only thing that matters is consumer welfare. Not just consumer price, but pretty close to the only thing that matters is consumer price. And what that leads to is also a belief that you can have competition without competitors. That you can have a world where there is a totally dominant player, but because there are potential competitors and that dominant player seems to be doing okay on price for now, we're not going to, we're not going to get involved. The old regime says, Free markets are rare, they're amazing, they're wonderful, but they take certain structures. Certain things have to exist for a free market to exist. And one of the things that we have to do um, to, to ensure competition is to ensure that there are, in fact, uh, no truly dominant players. That, to me, addresses both the economic and the political, and they are tied. Because one of the things that you see, for instance, in the chicken area, because I found a sweet spot for you, apparently, when you see these incredible mergers, at first you see prices go down. So if you're in the in the modern consumer welfare antitrust regime, this is great. Prices are going. But then after a decade, they start coming up. Because once you have that dominance, then you can use that dominance to steal all kinds of value. But it's really hard for a court to say, we're going to look 10 years out and see the kind of ways in which you're going to abuse that dominance. So I think we should go back to a much more workable regime and then deal with some of the current problems um, that we have, because we're out of control in terms of consolidation right now. Like it's... Um, I mean the the area that you know really well i 'd be interested to hear what what you see in the healthcare area, but you certainly see um, as far as I can tell price impacts from hospital consolidation. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are very real impacts, as well as political impacts. And then you also see in the pharma area the the. Um,
1: Although it's funny in the healthcare area because a solution that I am interested in and that other people are interested in, because it's how other countries work to some degree, is all payer rate setting, which would effectively, I mean, it isn't itself a consolidation, but it allows private and public buyers much more. I mean much more power to bargain down prices with providers now on the one hand what you've got there is something that is more like consolidation but i also think the dynamics of healthcare are quite unusual but um when you think about that regime are is the kind of outcome we're thinking about here rules-based are we saying that an industry as we define it should not get above x percentage consolidation with its major players or its major two or three players Are we talking about just having people run the antitrust department who have a somewhat different theory and are more aggressive? What does that look like? Because I think that when people talk about this in the abstract, it all sounds pretty good. Um, I mean, who wants giant, super powerful corporations controlling everything? But then it's like, well, do you want to break up Google? Like they are clearly a monopolist in search. Right. It's only when you start redefining their industry that you can get away from that. Right. Um, Like, where does it lead?
0: Yeah. So I think there's what's exciting about this year, and you're right to sort of note that there's a lot of new energy around this. Louis, uh, Luigi Zingales, who's a Republican at the University of Chicago, um, has been talking about this for a couple of years now, that this is a real threat to market freedom, the, the, the concentration. And actually, I was at a conference last, uh, last month at the Chicago School, at the Chicago School, the school that brought on consumer welfare, where people were saying, yeah, we might have got it wrong. You know, we got, we got, we, there's something clearly off in, in the American economy, and it relates to politics. Specific things we can do. Um, one is that the low-hanging fruit is um, not allow this kind of merger wave that we're seeing right now um, and be a lot more skeptical and scrutinize mergers a lot more closely. Um, That, I think, again, I just want to repeat that the last two years were the highest number of mergers on record ever, so we're in the middle of one of these waves, and we've got to do something about that. Um, The second is in the area of the platform monopolists, Facebook, Google, Amazon, uh, there's special problems there. And I think calling on some of the old, um, traditions of competition policy or monopoly po- policy or monopsony policy, if you want to call it that, you know, I, I put them all in the same category is important. So some of those old traditions would say we, it's really important for us to have Google. We, we believe in Google, but. Uh, or we believe that it's important this is a really important service but what we don't like is for google to be able to own a competitor to yelp um, so i just use yelp as an example y- you may sometimes use yelp to find a restaurant i've yelped <laughs> you've yelped okay but google controls its own search results and it's competing against yelp now for restaurant ratings and for you know your hair salon pick your pick your topic um, the fact that it's competing against something like Yelp is kind of problematic because then it makes it really hard for not just Yelp to compete, but any other company that might want to come along and also be a competitor in that space. So cross-ownership, we should be extremely skeptical of cross-ownership. And what you've seen in the last 30 years is a judiciary that has allowed all kinds of what we call vertical integration or cross-ownership that would not have allowed it before. That may require new legislation. Um, And some of that may have to happen at the state level, just given the current Congress, but certainly there's a possibility of people introducing legislation. So I think the platform monopolists pose a special uh, challenge. The other thing you can do with platform monopolists is uh, require a certain degree of uh, neutrality. Um, And certainly Europe is very involved in these questions. They're really seen as ahead of the United States in dealing with the Um, Democratic and economic threats posed by the uh, platform monopolists. And I think it's something that we should be looking into here. And then there's the question of those companies that have already used the current permissiveness with mergers over the last 30 years that are not google or amazon or facebook um, should we be pushing for divestiture in the sort of uh, in, in the in the real breakup uh, area and i think the answer has to be yes so that we have to undo some of the bad things that have already um, been done and then the final area is looking at the role the financial sector plays in consolidation i mean goldman sachs has made so much money off of m&a so it's not it's not companies on their own choosing to merge it's also the financial sector really encouraging that kind of action
1: so, and that's uh, just the uh-huh. tip of the iceberg. <laughs> <laughs> I, I worry we'll have to go down the rest of the iceberg in, in, a, in another episode. Um, before, we, before we close out, the, the question we always ask to end the podcast is, what are three books that you've read that have influenced you that you would recommend to, to folks listening?
0: Oh, fantastic. Um, well, everybody has to read Middlemarch. It's one of the greatest uh, books ever written. And also, some good stuff on corruption. Um, I'd suggest The Gilded Age by Mark Twain. And then uh, my all-time favorite is probably All the King's Men.
1: All the King's Men is so good. Uh, Zephyr Teachout, thank you very much.
0: Thanks for having me on.
1: Thank you to Zephyr Teachout for being here. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. Thank you to my producer, Bird Pinkerton. The Ezra Clan Show will be back next week.